got your Bible, turn with me to 2 Corinthians tonight. We're going to divert from Genesis tonight and go to 2 Corinthians 13. And we're going to look at the very end of the book. 2 Corinthians 13, verses 11 through 14. This is a passage that I have preached before. It's been years since I preached it, but I... I been in just in my reading this week. I came back to it, and I, I what it instructs of us to do, and what it says about God uh, is just a comfort to me. And uh, it, I hope it'll be a comfort to you tonight. By way of introduction, what do we know about this? We know that Paul wrote Second Corinthians. We know that there are at least three letters he wrote to the church at Corinth. Probably at least four, but we know of at least three because they are mentioned. We only have two in the Bible, but there's another one that's mentioned that uh, is not has not been preserved. So, uh, a writing letters was no small thing in that time. <laughs> it, it it used resources and time and great effort to be able to write an extensive letter to another group of people. So, uh, this was a prolific part of his ministry to write to Corinth, and we understand why he would take such time to write to this church because we read in Acts 18 that he spent a lot of time there, 18 months, and of course in the grand scheme of things that's not a great deal of time, but in the scope of his ministry, yes it was, because he was going all over Asia Minor, Jerusalem, Rome, may have even gone to Spain, uh, although we don't have proof that he did, we know he wanted to go to Spain at one point, but 18 months in Corinth, an influential city, a relatively wealthy city, and uh, one that would influence others, a city that would, would influence others. So we also know about this church that they weren't all believers. We read of first in first, both 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, these are heavy letters. In some instances, he is addressing some vile immorality in the church. First Corinthians 5 talks about some, some gross sexual immorality. We know that Christian liberty was being abused. We know that people weren't taking the Lord's Supper the right way. We know that uh, spiritual gifts were being abused in this church. And he addresses all those things in First Corinthians. And in Second Corinthians, he spends most of this letter defending himself from attacks from the outside people who had maybe come into this church and raised up arguments against Paul. And um, he is spending most of 2 Corinthians defending himself. He even goes in, in 2 Corinthians 11 and has that very powerful passage about all the things he has suffered. And yet in chapter 12, Jesus' grace is sufficient for him. So um, he loved this church. And these words that we are going to read now are his last words we have recorded to them from him. So let's read starting in verse 11. Finally, brethren, rejoice, be made complete, be comforted, be like-minded, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. So, of the different letters Paul wrote, this is the one with my favorite ending. He, he writes several letters to churches, several 
letters to individuals, Titus, Philemon. But this passage, this ending, is both deeply theological and it is deeply practical. It is heartfelt. And there are three big points here in these four verses, and there are sub-points, especially to the first big point. And since Paul intended this for the church, for those who believe in Jesus Christ, remember the church is those who believe. It's not just buildings. It's it's the people who believe in Jesus Christ. There is a lot we can take from this. In fact, there's a lot we must take from this. So first, the first thing that I want you to see here is we have God-given responsibilities. We have God-given responsibilities in this passage. Paul says, finally, brethren. And he has come to the end of this letter, which again, by and large, is a stern, heavy letter, probably written through tears. And still he looks at these people as brothers. Finally, brethren. And then he gives six imperatives. And And when I say imperatives... I stress that because these are not suggestions that he's giving in these verses. They are in the form of commands, and uh, those must be obeyed. And the first of those commands is to rejoice. To rejoice. Now, some of our English translations, you may have one in front of you that says something different, like farewell or goodbye instead of rejoice. And there are some decent reasons why some English translators have done that in various translations. But the best translation, in my opinion, is rejoice. It is a command to to be glad, to to rejoice. And again, that is to be the default position of a believer. This, this one says be joyful. Be joyful. That that's a that's a good one. That's okay, good. I just know that there are some others where you might have something different. I'm in scouring different translations. Um, be joyful. Rejoice. And that is the default position for someone who professes to believe in Jesus Christ. We see this all over the New Testament. In fact, we see it all over the Old Testament too. We think of the Psalms. and But in the New Testament, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say rejoice uh, in Philippians. In fact, there's a, they made a, uh, it's been a long time since I've sung it, but there was a, a praise song. Rejoice in the Lord always and again. Always. Anyway, uh, I don't want to sing uh, too much tonight. Um, <laughs> huh? I'm sorry. Okay. But, I mean, that's just, that's Philippians 4. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 5.16 says, Rejoice always. The next verse says, Pray without ceasing. So, in, in if, we, if we understand we're supposed to always be in this attitude and position of prayer before God, the verse before it says we're always to be joyful before the Lord. Um, we are in Colossians one twenty four to rejoice in sufferings. In First Peter one six, rejoice in salvation. In First Peter one eight, rejoice at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In Galatians five twenty two, joy is the second of those fruits of the spirit that are listed: love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self control. We are to be rejoicing regardless of the circumstances in our lives. And and so we we I say that and this is where I remind everybody that joy does not equal happiness. We think of Jesus' own life. There were many times where Jesus was sorrowful. There were many times where Jesus was right rightfully angry. 
but that does not that those things are not mutually exclusive from joy. Um, joy does not equal happiness. We can in, we can have joy even in the midst of sorrow, even in trials, even when we've been betrayed, because joy does not equal happiness. Joy is an inward disposition of the the heart uh, of the spirit of the heart made alive. That is, it doesn't. It's not. I don't want to say it's not affected by exterior circumstances, but it should persevere. That, that that attitude toward God, that joy in the Lord should persevere through the ebbs and flows of our daily lives, each minute, each hour. I mean, our, our moods can change in, in the blink of an eye, depending on what happens in the midst of our day. We can go from happy to angry, happy to sad, happy to, to whatever. But that shouldn't change our position toward God. Joy is, is something that is rooted, it finds its genesis in the Holy Spirit, and it finds its hope in eternal life. And those things should never change, no matter what is happening in our lives. So to rejoice is to know that even in the middle of the most grueling pain, everything is okay, everything is alright, because Jesus Christ is still Lord. To, to, to rejoice is to rest in the knowledge that no matter what is confronting us, we are in Christ. That's why Paul, when he is under house arrest, when he is chained to a Roman soldier in Philippians, can say, rejoice. That's why he can write to this Corinthian church with its, all of its problems, and some of them are egregious problems, and give them this apostolic command to rejoice. We are commanded to rejoice. And then, so that presents us ultimately and immediately you know, with the question, do I have that inward disposition of the spirit of joy? And if the answer is no, there is cause to be concerned about that because if joy is the default position of a Christian and yet we are constantly not joyful, not, not looking to the Lord, not, not um, confident in the hope of eternal life, then we must and, and probably we should question our standing before God. Because then we have to ask, and what are we trusting? Joy is intricately related to faith. The second command then we see is to be made complete. To be made complete. Interesting words there. Um, We are to imitate Christ. In fact, Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. We are to imitate Christ, and since he was and is perfect, we are to have that same aim. Now, of course, we are all sinners who fall short of the glory of God, but we are to aim to be like Christ. And Paul rejoiced, actually, in chapter 13, verse 9, just a couple verses before what we started to read, he is rejoicing in the strength of the believers there in Corinth. And now in verse 11, he he isn't praying for them to be made complete, but commanding that it be so. The irony being that we are not the responsible party in making ourselves complete. If you look at that, you see what what he says here, be made complete. That is a passive verb. And, And as I've said many times, even the grammar of Scripture is inspired. And what, what Paul is saying here is that you can't make yourselves complete. 
You can't perfect yourselves, but you are to be perfected. You are to be completed by another. And who is that other? It is, of course, God. It is the Holy Spirit who makes believers in His Son complete. It is the perfect Son we are to emulate. It's through the power and indwelling of the Holy Spirit we progressively grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and are therefore made more and more complete. This is the idea of sanctification. We, we talk about salvation and, and when we talk about salvation, usually we're referring to being born from above, regeneration or justification, being declared righteous by God, uh, before God, by God, by faith in Jesus Christ. We think of salvation, we usually think of a point in time in our lives, but really salvation starts at a point in time and goes forever and ever. Because salvation includes not only our glorification in eternity, but this lifelong process of sanctification where we are being made holy by God. The New Living Translation uses the term grow to maturity, which if you're speaking of spiritual maturity, uh, fits your description. It fits the description, but what I don't like about that translation is it sounds like an active verb the way they translate it. And the Greek is a passive verb. Um, the idea is there of growing in maturity in Christ. But what we see through the even the grammar of Scripture that... And, and trust me, this is not something easy to explain, but as we are to strive for holiness and righteousness and godliness and perfection and completeness... We are to at the same time recognize it as God doing this stuff in us. Ultimately, it is Him. Uh, there, there, no, uh, I, I quoted from Romans 7 on Sunday morning about how there's nothing good in my flesh, but it's the Spirit of Christ. Wretched man that I am, who can save me from the, this body of death? It's Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So it is of God. So we become complete... When we are without sin, we, that, that the process will be finished when we are with Christ in eternity, in, in, in heaven, whatever you want to call it. Um, but until that day, we are moving toward that. We are to be moving toward that. And, and so we ask ourselves another question. Can it be said tonight that we are growing toward completion in Christ? So the third command then. Be comforted. And again, there's a translation issue here. A couple of versions, you can tell me if you got something like this, says, listen to my appeal. Anyone got anything like that? There's a couple of translations that carry something like that. But it is be comforted. And it is, again, a passive verb. Uh, there, there, this is something that you are commanded to have happen to you. But how? Well, the answer lies in the verb Paul uses. The verb Paul uses here is a, a variation of a Greek word, parakaleo. And what that, it, it's the same word Jesus uses in John 14, 26, the night before his death, when he says, the helper is coming, the Holy Spirit. That's the word he uses to describe the Holy Spirit. He is the paraclete. He is the helper. He is the comforter. He is the encourager. Um, so, so God Himself, the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, 
fulfills this command to comfort us on our behalf. Uh, my translation says encourage each other. Yeah, I don't think that gets the gist of the Greek. Okay. I, 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 you know, certainly there is a sense in which we are to encourage each other. We have plenty of verses that tell us to do that. Hebrews 3.13 is the first one that comes to mind. But uh, I... I as I understand this, what's being said here, as I understand Paul's argument, as I understand the language as it is being translated into English, this is something God is doing to us. This is something God is accomplishing us, accomplishing in us, I should say. So we are to, to, to be comforted by the Holy Spirit. Um, so just as God is the one who makes all those in Christ complete. God is the one who comforts us, and that should not just encourage us theologically, but but all theology should work itself out in our hearts and influence how we live. Your theology is worth nothing if it doesn't affect how you live. Um, we show we are comforted by the Holy Spirit when even through sufferings and trials and even the worst uh, most dire situations in our lives, we still obey Christ. That's when we obey Christ despite the ramifications. When we can see negative ramifications in front of us in this world for following Christ, and still we are, are willing to go, that shows that our we we recognize our true comfort is in the Holy Spirit, which is exactly what Paul is saying here. So he says, "Be comforted." Fourth thing he says is be like-minded. Be like-minded. And this one is an active verb, so it's something we must actively do. Be like-minded or agree with one another. And, and sadly, as we, we all know, I mean, it doesn't take a, a church historian to know that the history of Christ's church, while there it is a testimony to the, the, the sovereignty of God and the eternality of the gospel that the church exists today there's also a side of the history of Christ's church that is greatly marked by division and disagreement we are here at Bethlehem a Southern Baptist church the Southern Baptist convention was founded in 1845 over a division with Baptist in the north over slavery and missions so our very denomination is founded uh, by division um, and, of course, Southern Baptists in particular can be notorious at times for being disagreeable and disagreeing with one another. And, and we got company in Corinth because I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am of Christ is what we see in the, in the, in the Corinthian letters. This church had some divisions itself. And the church at Philippi, you know, we think of the book of Philippians if you're familiar with the book of Philippians, that's a book where joy is the theme of that letter. You go into a, a, a Christian bookstore, you look for a commentary on Philippians, you got a halfway decent chance that that commentary is going to be titled or subtitled with the word joy somewhere in there. That's, that's how much of a, of a theme it is of that book. And yet still, we read in that letter that Paul has to urge two women named Yodia and Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. So, you know, whatever is coming next for any of us, we are to 
be like-minded. We are to agree with one another. But I have to say at this point, not for the sake of agreeing with one another. Our agreeing must be based upon the Word of God. Okay? We can't follow the command to be like-minded and, and just assume it means agree no matter what. Jesus didn't agree with others no matter what. He didn't agree with the scribes. He didn't agree with the Pharisees. He didn't agree with the Romans. He didn't agree with his own disciples at times. Uh, there has to be a foundation. There has to be a reference point. There has to be an authoritative source upon which our agreement is based. And it is the Scriptures. It is the Word of God. The inspired, inerrant, authoritative, sufficient Word of God. Breathed out by God. Sufficient for all things. First, or 2 Peter 1 verse 3. For all things pertaining to life and godliness. Um, so our agreeing with one another is predicated on the church being a phrase that I, I try to adopt for my own life. I've tried to adopt for everything I do. Thoroughly biblical. Thoroughly biblical. That's how our agreement happens. And so this church and all others, in order to obey this command, we've got to submit to the instruction and the command of the Word of God. Not our traditions. Not our personal uh, preferences for things. Um, not, not sitting on our hands waiting for things to get better. We have to follow God's Word. And that leads to the next command which is to live in peace. Live in peace. And that is inextricably linked to agreeing with one another. So it is necessary, it is obligatory, that any peace we have is also grounded upon the truth of God's Word. Um, we live in this day and age. Some people call it postmodernism, where... Your truth is your truth. My truth is my truth. We're kind of moving past that age, actually, to where you're not allowed. Your truth must be subjugated to my truth. We see this a lot here as we see Christian liberty being attacked on various levels in our own country. Of course. I guess the first thing that comes to mind is, is <clears throat> the women marching, marching and they wouldn't even allow Right. In, in yeah. Right women march for the rights of women as long as you're not a pro-life woman. That's we can't live in peace with that kind of ideology. But that is what's taking up that we're moving past you agree you you believe what you believe and I believe what I believe and can't we all just get along? Rodney King said that, you know, in the riots in LA. 25 years ago we've moved past that it's now and you've heard me say this celebrate evil or else <laughs> you're going to agree with me you're going to you are going to affirm you know the, the boy scouts of america are, are now allowing transgender they're allowing girls who identify as boys agree with me or else and i, I tell you what if they made the opposite decision to exclude them they'd be excoriated by the prevailing winds of our culture, as we have seen. So it is obligatory that any peace we have be grounded upon the truth of the you Word know, of God. Something that puzzles me is I cannot believe that the majority of our people think that way. Well, po polls will tell you they don't. They I mean, don't. I mean, they don't. We're the silent majority. 
just that bunch that just, I look at them and I, I think to myself, do none of them have a job? Right. Well, I mean, this, I mean, do I believe that a majority of people think that the Boy Scouts made a right decision? Absolutely not. But are we living in a culture where this loud minority, this loud, vile, evil minority, and I'm just, that, that's, what, that's what it is. I pray God will save individuals out of that, but as a whole, their ideology can be described in nothing less than evil. And, and I'm losing my train of thought, but we can't have peace with evil. Jesus didn't. You know, we we cannot. It's not can't we all just get along in the church? It's what does the word of God say, and we better submit to that because He is the source of our peace. And and majority opinions don't even matter before God because the majority can be wrong. Majorities have been wrong plenty of times in this in in world history. Um, what does God say? So, so uh, my point here is that this command to live in peace is not a command to live in peace for the sake of peace. Romans twelve eighteen. The first time I ever preached here, I preached this passage. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. And implicit in that command is a recognition that there will be disagreements. But we aren't to let it be because we aren't believing and obeying what God has said. And we aren't to let it be because we haven't tried to show others what the Word of God says. There will be those who hate you. Jesus says that. There will be those who hate you because they hate the Word of God. They hate the Lord. Sometimes they don't even realize it. But don't let it be because you haven't believed the truth. Don't let it be because you aren't practicing and proclaiming the truth. Live in peace. Agree with one another. In as much as possible, live in peace. So obeying five commands here. To rejoice, be made complete, be comforted, be like-minded, live in peace. They have attached to them this fringe benefit which outweighs any kickback the world could offer. Follow these commands, Paul writes, and the love of God and peace will be with you. And remember, Paul, remember to who Paul is writing. The church at Corinth. The very sinful church at Corinth. And the church, you know, not made up of those on a membership role, but made up of real Christians. This church had struggled. There were people definitely out of the will of God. And Paul here, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, links a promise to the commands with a reward that is given on condition of obedience. Rejoice, be made complete, be comforted, be like-minded, live in peace. And if you do, the God of love and peace will be with you. It's a glorious promise to those who are in Christ. And it's all the more glorious when we consider how God enables and empowers us to follow Him. Consider what Paul's words say about God. It is God who produces love. It is God who produces peace. It, 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 it isn't just that God loves or, or that He gives peace, but both of those attributes are personified in Himself. 
He is the God of love. He is the God of peace through His Son, Jesus. Everyone who believes in Jesus today has the Holy Spirit living in them, the Spirit of peace. And so there's this command. If this stuff is true of Christians, we don't just live by the Spirit, we walk by the Spirit. We obey these things. Obeying these commands is what it looks like to walk by the Spirit. Obey these commands and the God who produces love and peace will abide in you. Uh, abide in Christ, the one whom, in whom love and peace are found. And you will know He is present with you wherever you are, whatever you are going through at all times. And what a promise that is. What a promise that is. What a comfort that is for us. That, that God is pouring out His love and His peace upon those who follow Him like this. And so in verse 12, we see a sixth command. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I don't think any of us kissed each other when we came here today. Maybe Wade Maxine did. I don't know. But remember here, let's talk about what this means because this shows up not just here. Remember here that Christianity's roots are in Judaism. Okay, The New Testament comes out of the Old Testament, the church. And in Judaism, a non-romantic kiss to another was an expression not just of peace and friendship, but of reconciliation. And by telling the members of this church to greet one another with a kiss and then adding the, obje- the adjective holy to it, Paul is calling for a distinctly Christian kind of reconciliation here. It is absolutely unchristian to remain in conflict with another believer in Christ. In fact, to remain in such conflict and not to seek to do all you can to remedy that situation is to to disqualify yourself from being worthy to take the Lord's Supper. Paul says that in 1 Corinthians 11. So, It's a big deal. Our greetings toward one another are to be based on the organic connection each of us has to Jesus. So greet one another with a holy kiss. And and again, I don't think that means we literally need to wet each other's cheeks. I don't want you to wet my cheeks, and you probably don't want me to wet yours. We, We are living in a different culture here. But we do need to realize that our connection in Christ is what matters here. Our being reconciled to one another is what matters here. It's not just about being like-minded. It's about reconciling with one another when there is conflict the way you have been reconciled to God through Jesus. In Psalm 2, he says, some translations say, do homage to the Son, give homage to the Son. More literal translation in Psalm 2, which is a messianic psalm, is kiss the Son. In other words, be reconciled to God through His Messiah. And now Paul is telling us, greet one another with a holy kiss. Be reconciled to one another because of what Christ has done for you. So we have some pretty heady and heavy God-given responsibilities here. And that's just the first two verses. Well, the, the second two verses don't take quite as long. The second big point I want to make is that you have brothers and sisters supporting you. Look at verse 13. All the saints greet you. We are by nature 
And I think this is more true in America than it is other parts of the world, but we are by nature a very provincial people. We have local restricted interest. So it is very tempting to forget sometimes when we look in the mirror that we are not alone. We are not alone in this particular church, in this particular assembly, and we are not alone in the world. Um, There are local churches in the world. Bethlehem is one of them. But there is one universal church comprising every, every single person who believes in Jesus Christ. Every single person who acknowledges Him as Lord. Every single person who has been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And Jesus is the head of that church. There is one church in which all of the members are, are, are that. And the Corinthians were among them. And here he says, "Be Rejoice, be made complete. Be comforted, be like-minded, live in peace, greet one another with a holy kiss. Paul wanted the Corinthians to know all the saints greet you. All the saints. You're not alone, Corinthians. The, the, the saints in Ephesus greet you. The saints in Jerusalem greet you. The saints in Philippi greet you. The saints in Troas greet you. And so on and so on. Long story short here, we are not to be a provincial church. We are not to be merely interested in our own things in in local things we are to be interested uh in 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 other believers and and the welfare of others not merely looking inward we are to think locally but we are also to think godly and globally missions minded so that's the second point the third point big point you have god the father God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit with you too. If you're a Christian, you have God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit with you. And of all the last words Paul uses through all his letters, all of the the benedictions, 2 Corinthians is unique because here in verse 14, it's the only time Paul invokes all three persons of the Trinity in his closing blessing. He writes, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. It's not merely a reminder to them. It's also a reminder to us about who God is. It's a reminder, in summary, of the gospel that Paul and all of the apostles have had been proclaiming. The grace, let's just go through each of these. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ recalls to us the salvation of sinners and how it is completely unwarranted and undeserved. Grace, by nature, is unmerited favor. We don't deserve it. On any any part of the sinner, we don't deserve it. It is completely wrought and completely bought through the finished work of Christ, the perfect Son of God who willingly laid down His life. He was crucified that our sins might die with Him. He was raised on the third day that we who believe might have life everlasting with Him. So the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. The the love of God be with you all. The love of God, a reference to God the Father who sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. We all know first we all know John three sixteen, probably. We should all learn first John four verses nine and ten. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins, that is, the absorber of the wrath for our sins. 
for, for again, why? For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. God is a God of love. God, love is not God. God is love. It is part of who He is. And nowhere is that greater exemplified than in the Father sending His Son to save His people from their sins. So the love of God be with you all. The fellowship of the Spirit be with you all. The fellowship of the Spirit is a reminder that salvation is not a standalone act. But as we talked about earlier, it is a, 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 a lifelong process of sanctification leading to our glorification. Being made holy until that, that moment we are perfected in the presence of Christ. And the Spirit is the one who accomplishes that in us. For, for all of our lives, for now and forevermore, salvation is something that started at a point in time. It actually started in eternity past with God, but it, but it started in us at a point in time. And, and today, the Spirit remains in us if we believe. And what does Second Corinthians say about that? That it is a pledge, it is a down payment. He is a down payment, not it. The Spirit is not an it, it's a he. He is a down payment to believers of God's promise. And what promise is that? 2 Corinthians 5, that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life and we who trust in the Lord will be reconciled to Him forever. God, all three persons of the Trinity, will be with all who believe forever. So if you trust in Jesus Christ, if you have been born from above, if you have been reconciled to God, if you are a new creation, if you have been saved, then what? Rejoice. Be made complete. Be comforted. Be like-minded. Live in peace. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Reconciliation. Because while you might have God-given responsibilities, you have brothers and sisters supporting you, but most of all, you have God the Father, God the Spirit, and God the Son with you from now until the day of eternity. And that's all you need. What comes next? God knows. Like Paul and his words to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, this is what the full counsel of God teaches us. And that's all we can do. That's all I can do. That's all you can do, no matter what. Let's pray. Father, what a blessing this text is. I, I, I thank you so much tonight for it and for how you are working in me through this text. I pray that you're working through these others through this text tonight. That through it we see the just the wonder. that maybe, maybe tonight we are reminded of the wonder and the glory of the salvation you provide us in Jesus. Yes, we've got responsibilities. They're heavy responsibilities. They're and, and, and the truth of the matter is we can't do it on our own. We always screw it up. That's why we need your grace. Make us complete. Make us complete. Comfort us, Father. Help us to be like-minded. Help us to live in peace. Help us to be reconciled to one another. Help us to rejoice. Father, I pray that you will be glorified through us. 
I thank you for your word. I thank you for the promise that all three members of the Trinity, all three persons of the Trinity, that our united God, three in one, is with us forever. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.